Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter number 19. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. I'm thrilled that you're here. I appreciate it. I see a few visitors. What a blessing to have you here with us. And uh, we, we appreciate you being here. Uh, in East Tennessee, you can throw a rock and hit six or eight churches. Amen. And we know you probably had to drive past several to be here today, and that's not lost on us. We appreciate you being with us. 1 Kings chapter number 19 and uh, I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse number 21 and uh, uh, the entirety of the chapter. And uh, the Lord helped me a little bit through this. And uh, I like it when the Lord, I, I found when the Lord helps me, I can be better help to other folks. Uh, and a lot of times he'll, he'll speak to me and, and I just, I guess I'm just average or, or below average, but uh, it seems like when he helps me, he helps other folks through it. And so the Lord helped me, encouraged me through this. And I want to share a few thoughts with you. This morning, First Kings chapter number 19. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you're familiar with where we are. Uh, you know that there's just been the contest on Mount Carmel that God has answered by fire, uh, proven to the nation of Israel that he truly is God. They've slain the prophets of Baal, uh, purged the kingdom, as it were, uh, from idolatry. And this is a moment of great victory for Elijah. Uh, this is a moment that is a conquering moment in his life. But I want you to notice what takes place. Verse number 1, the Bible says, And Ahab, he's the king, of course, of Israel. Ahab told Jezebel, who is his wife, she's a wicked woman, uh, he told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. When he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. The angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint 
to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. Him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, every mouth which hath not kissed him. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelve. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. He said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Lord, thank you for allowing us to be in your house. I pray that you would speak to each and every heart here. Now, Lord, if that was something I was asked to do, I couldn't do it. But it's something that you can do this morning. You can take the holy, inspired, preserved Word of God and you can apply it to our hearts through the ministration of the Holy Spirit to speak to us exactly what we need to hear to deal with our lives according to Thy will. And I pray that as You perform this, Lord, we would respond in obedience. Lord, that we not harden our hearts or stiffen our necks, but Father, that we would have a heart of self-examination, of humility before You today as we allow You to encourage us, to rebuke us, to exhort us, to edify us, Lord, to make us more into Christ's image. And Lord, we know if that's accomplished, then we'll have spent our time well this morning. It'll all be uh, under Your glory and honor, for that's how we ask it, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter number 19, we find the plummet of Elijah's morale and spirit from probably what is the greatest moment of victory in his life to the lowest moment of defeat in his life. Elijah literally goes from basking in the glory of God, making manifest His presence and power of seeing the very people who he had prayed for and who he loved turn their hearts away from idolatry and to the God of Israel, of seeing the expulsion and extermination of men of wicked influence and perverse hearts from the nation of Israel. I guess what I'm trying to say is this was a big day for Elijah. This was a day that you would have thought, man, he would have been floating on cloud nine. He would have been whistling a tune. He would have had a spring in his step. This is a day that you would have thought would have been marked by great victory. When we read in 1 Kings 19, we find that from that high mountain, he plunges to a low valley, and it is instead a moment of great despair in his life. He eventually comes to a place, and we, of course, in the preaching will in due course get there, but he eventually comes and sits under a juniper tree, and he looks up at God and he offers this prayer. He says, Lord, it is enough. Now take away my life. Kill me. I'm done living. I'm done working. I'm done laboring. I'm done trying. God, just kill me. Get it done with. For I'm not better than my father. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say this. This was Elijah giving up on God. Now, before you get uh, too haughty or too prideful, can I say, if you were to be honest, and if I were to be honest, we've probably had our own moments under the juniper tree. Uh, the, you going to help me this morning? Uh, don't make me carry it all this morning. Amen. It's okay to amen, all right, if you agree with it. And if you don't, it's still okay to amen. I know it. Nobody knows the difference. I don't know about you, but if you were to look in my backyard on Majors Road, you'd find a few juniper trees planted there. I mean, if I was to be honest, I've had those moments of darkness, of discouragement, of despair in my ministry, in my Christian walk, 
where it was just easier to say, I just want to lay here, pull the blanket over my head, give up, check out, quit, and not go on and serve God. I've had my moments like this. You probably had your moments like this. But aren't you glad even when we give up on Him, He don't give up on us? If I had been God, I would have said, all right, lay there and pout about it, Elijah. But instead, God, with more tenderness than I have, He deals with Elijah and He encourages him to get up and go on in serving the Lord. I want to preach to you this morning on this thought, why going on is better than giving up. You serve God long enough, there's going to be times in your life you're going to feel like giving up. You're going to feel like giving up on the house of God, giving up on the Word of God, giving up on the service of God, the work of God. There's going to be times, and listen, if you figured out a way to walk through this life and never feel that pressure, I sure enough wish you'd let me in on it because it'd make my life a lot easier. But the truth is we all go through times when it would be easy to say, I'm over it, I'm done, I just quit, and I won't go on. But I think it's better to go on than it is to give up. And evidently God does too because He encourages Elijah here that he needs to go on and serve him and not give up on the work of the Lord. You know, I think really if we're going to approach this passage, we have to answer one question before we even get to the preaching. And that's this. How did Elijah wind up in this condition? Now, I do not say that in a spirit of pride because I've wound up in that place. You've wound up in that place. But if we're going to do a deep dive, if we're going to understand what has happened to his heart, to his mind, to his spirit, we need to understand how he got in this place. And I think it is a reasonable question to ask. How does a man that just went on the mountaintop and got great victory with God and through God, how does he wind up in this lowest of low places? I'm glad, listen, I'm glad God can pick us up out of the ditch. But it'd be nice every now and then to miss a ditch, wouldn't it? You understand what I'm saying? Like, I'm glad He can pick me up out of the ditch, man. Praise God. But it'd be nice every now and then to not fall in the ditch. How is it that he wound up in this situation? I want you to notice three things very quickly just by way of introduction. Look at verse 1. The Bible says Ahab, he's the wicked king of Israel. He told his even wickeder wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Look at verse 3. The Bible says, and when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. Can I tell you the very first thing that leads from the mountaintop to the juniper tree is a loss of focus. The Bible says he saw that. Isn't that interesting? A, a piece of news, a piece of fact, a piece of trivia, just someone coming with a kin and saying, Jezebel has said, it's, it's not that he saw those words, it's not that he saw that message, but he saw what that message implied. Can I say this? In your life and mine, what we keep our eyes on will dictate much about our spiritual resolve and resilience. Uh, he could have been rejoicing in the great victory God had given. He could have been rejoicing in the great change of heart that God had produced in the nation. But instead, he chose to focus on the threats of the wicked instead of the glory of the Almighty, and it led to his discouragement. Can I just give you a little piece of practical counsel? There's about 90% of the stuff that goes on in this world that you ain't helped a lick by focusing on. We live in a day, and we're seeing this now. And, and listen, you feel free. You don't get nothing for it, but feel free to disagree with what I'm about to say. But part of the product of living in the information age is we have information overload. Now, I'm not suggesting God wants us to be ignorant or stick our heads in the sand, 
But I'm saying this, we live in a day where if you want to obsess over wickedness, there's a lot of wickedness at your disposal to obsess over. I mean, listen, I, as Christians, we, we've got this mind frame where we walk around discouraged like God fell off of His throne, like things have spun out of control, like any of this has took God by surprise. Can I just clue all of us in this morning? There ain't no thing that takes place that takes Him by surprise. It may surprise you, but it don't never surprise Him. And the wickedness that goes on in the world, God already knows about it. Let me go a step further. He knew about it before you knew about it. I'm not saying we need to stick our head in the sand. I'm not saying we need to pretend like things are not as they are. But I am saying this. We live on a steady digest of of, of wickedness, of rage, of divisiveness. We shouldn't be surprised when we're not having the most buoyant spirit. We shouldn't be surprised when it's hard to stay out of the dumps when all we do is look at trash all the time. When we focus on all the wickedness and vileness and evil in the world. Hey, listen, I was reading an article the other day uh, about these uh, these fact checkers for it was Facebook explicitly, but for social media and uh, mo- you know moderator content moderators curators. I don't know what they called it, but people whose job it is to kick people off Facebook, right? And and they were talking about how they're having to like get these people psychological treatment for PTSD because they literally spend ten and twelve hours a day watching videos of child abuse, of beheadings, of murder, of violence, of all these wicked, evil things. And they're literally—I mean, these people are cracking up. They're losing their mind because ten, twelve hours a day, all they're doing is focusing on this. Now they get paid fifteen dollars an hour. What's your excuse? That's their job. They get paid money to do that, and they don't get paid enough to do it. The question is, why would you and I live on a steady digest of every wickedness and every vileness, and then come to church and wonder why God can't help us? Hey, it could help us just to turn away from some of that stuff and get our focus on the Lord. In other words, let me just say it this way. You and I, we choose what to focus on. And we can focus on the things that discourage us, or we can focus on the things that encourage us in the Lord. I'm not talking about making stuff up. I'm not talking about rose-colored glasses. I'm not talking about pretending or delusional optimism. I'm just saying getting our head out of everything that discourages us and getting our focus back on the Lord that helps us. I would say, number one, there was a loss of focus. Number two, look at verse three. It says, when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. Now this is interesting to me. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did he leave his servant behind? Now it's not as though Elijah could travel quicker without him. It's not as though Elijah was going to be impeded or hindered in his journey by him. After all, that servant's sole purpose and existence is to assist Elijah, to encourage Elijah to not be a hindrance to him. And certainly Elijah, if he's going to go out into the wilderness, you would imagine he would even want someone there uh, because there's strength in numbers, there's safety, they can forage. They can, I mean, everything would make sense to suggest he would not leave his servant behind. And yet he did. So the question is, why did he leave his servant behind? Now, again, feel free to disagree with me about this, but I found when I'm discouraged, there's nothing I hate more than someone trying to encourage me. Now, you might be different. I hope you are. But when I'm discouraged, there's a, there's a stage in that discouragement where I will get fighting mad if you dare try to tell me that it's not as bad as I think it is. Here's what we do. We take our, we, we take our pity. We, we, we take our, our, uh, you know, our, our self-focus and self-interest 
we dig a moat around it. We fill it with water and fill it with alligators and dare anyone to cross that drawbridge and tell us that God is still in control. We nurse it because it allows us to be indulgent of our own self-pity. And when we do that, we want to leave behind those that might threaten that narrative. Can I tell you this? There was not only a loss of focus, there was a lack of fellowship. Now, I, there, there's been people, I, and I've heard, I've heard all the reasons, I've heard all the excuses, I'm not dismissing them, I'm not doubting them. There's been a lot of reasons folks ain't been in the house of God over the past year or two years. Guess what? I'm going to answer to God, and you're going to answer to God. Whatever you tell me or I tell you about our reasons and whatever, I mean, that's fine, And and, and but I'm just saying we're all going to stand before God one day. We better remember that. But can I say this, that one of the great dangers in getting out of church is we disassociate, we remove ourselves from all those that would encourage us and help us in the walk of the Lord. I don't know if you're aware of this, but you need church, just like I need church. And if you want to say, I don't need church, then why did Christ love the church and give Himself for it? You say, well, preacher, you know, church is just its just kind of a spiritual thing. I can worship God out in the wilderness. Then why did He give churches? Why did He give pastors? Why did He give deacons? Why did He give an order to the local body? Why did He plant local churches in the New Testament? Why is it that out of some 108 times that the word church is used in the New Testament, 97 times it refers to the local assembly? If none of that matters, then why is it there? So here's the truth. You and I, we both need church. We need the house of God. We need the people of God. And here's why. The Bible tells us that iron sharpeneth iron. What does iron do when it's left alone? It rusts. And the fact of the matter is, when we oftentimes are spiraling in despair, one of the things we do to nurse and nurture that despair, because we're territorial over it, we don't want to give it up yet, is we will disassociate, we'll exclude ourselves away from the people of God because they just might remind us that God's in control and we can trust Him and things aren't as bad as we think they are. I'd say this, there was a lack of fellowship. But then look down at verse number 4 at the end of it. The Bible says when he came and sat down under the juniper tree, he requested for himself. Isn't that funny? He requested for himself that he might die. He doesn't have the courage. And I listen, I'm not saying it's a courageous thing to take your own life. But I'm saying he does not have nerve enough to take his own life. He requests that God will kill him. Why did he do that? Here's why. He wanted to sanctify his personal despair. He wanted God to endorse his pity party. He wanted God to show up and put a hat on and blow the kazoo and make him feel better about the pity party that he's having. So he asks God to take his own life because he recognizes that he does not have the authority, because that's what a man does when he takes his own life. He's putting himself in the throne of God, in the seat of God, and saying, I have the power over life and over death. Listen, I've had loved ones that have taken that sad route. You have too, and I'm not beating up on anybody. I'm just saying, you need to understand when the devil comes to you and tries to whisper that in your ear and tell you that's some kind of solution, what he's really doing is the same thing that he was doing in the Garden of Eden. He was saying, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He's really doing the same thing that he's always been doing. He's saying, I will ascend and be like the most high. He's really saying, you ought to be God and have the power over life and death. Can I just tell you a basic fundamental truth? Don't none of us control life and death but God. And that's true for those of you that want to die, and that's true for those of you that want to live. God is God, and He has power over life and death. He requests. He says, Lord, take my life. Kill me. He see, He requests that He might die. And then He says this. This is amazing. Now, this is a man that says, it's not my place to take my life. God is in control of my life. Then He says this. It is enough. Now, aren't those two, that, that doesn't G and Hall. He just got through saying, I'm not going to take my life. I'm going to let God be God. But then he looks at God and says, it's enough. 
Now, which is it, Elijah? Are you the master of your own destiny and you can say that it's enough, that what you're struggling through, what you're going through, what you're experiencing, that it's enough, that you can't bear anymore, that you can't handle it? Or is God God like you just implied when you asked Him to take your life? He says it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. And this is reason. He says, for I am not better than my father's. I would say this, you know, how do we get here? Well, there was a loss of focus and a lack of fellowship, but I'd say this, there was a lapse of faith. He quit trusting God. Let me tell you, the world gets real dark when you quit trusting God. A part of the reason society's coming apart at the hymn is a lot of people, even Christians, were not living in active faith anymore. And all of a sudden now, things look so dark. And we'll even say things like this. We'll say, how did it get so bad so quick? It ain't that it got so bad so quick. See, here's the difference, right? If you're sitting in your living room and you sit there all day from the middle of the noonday sun all the way to the middle of midnight and you've got a light on, that darkness is outside, but it's outside and you don't really notice it. But if you were to then get up, Brother Charlie, and go and turn off your light, you'd say, boy, it got dark in here quick. No, the truth is it was always dark. You just had the light on. We look around at the world outside and we say, how did it get so dark so quick? It didn't. We've just let the light be turned out. God's people have always lived in the midst of darkness. But we had the light of the world within us. And so we were able to bear it. We were able to go through it. We were able to, to, to glorify God in it. But now all of a sudden we quit actively trusting God with our life, with our, our, our situation, with our finances, with our health, with our family, with our relationships. All of a sudden we have brought that and pulled it onto our shoulders. And you know what we've said? We've said what Elijah said. It is enough. It may be enough for your shoulders, but it ain't enough for God's shoulders. He quit trusting God with his situation. Now, listen, I'm not being critical of him. I'd be right there with him. I got, I got, I were only told about one juniper tree. I got a whole orchard in my backyard. But I am saying that happens when we quit trusting God. Isn't it interesting what he says? I'm not better than my father's. I was having a conversation, I won't go into all the details, but I was having a conversation with a preacher friend last night and, and it took, we were talking about some issues regarding, you know, separation and ministry and different things and, and, it took me 45 minutes to try to finally understand what he was saying. I felt like he was trying to fix an issue that is not an issue. Isn't it interesting that Elijah says, I am not better than my father's. You know what my natural response would be? Elijah, who asked you to be better than your father's? Who said you had to be better than your father's? Let me go a step farther and say, who said your father's were so great in the first place? All this is centered around Elijah believing it is his responsibility to be the bearer of all of the burdens in the world. And he says, it's not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as they were. When the truth is, Elijah, you are not very good. But they weren't either. And it was never about them. We have always and ever and only lived this life by faith. You say, well, preacher, you know, I just don't know if I can bear it anymore. Well, why was you bearing it in the first place? Listen, the Bible says to cast all your, your cares upon Him, for He careth for you. He's a burden-bearing God. And if you wake up one day, and, and, and again, I'm, listen, I, I'm not casting rocks at you. I'm out in the crowd with you. I'm as bad as you are. We all are. But I'm saying, when you wake up one day and say, oh man, these burdens are too heavy to bear. The Lord said, my yoke is light. My burden is easy. He said, you should have given me that burden a long time ago and quit trying to carry it yourself. There was a lapse in faith. And here he finds himself under the juniper tree. God, instead of leaving him alone, instead of abandoning him to his despair, God instead gives Elijah several reasons why he needs to get up and go on 
and serve the Lord. And I want to share them with you. Look with me at verse number 5. The Bible says, And as he lay, as Elijah lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. Now, you might not see it this way, but I, we're told later that that's the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was the Lord Jesus Christ. The theological term is a theophany or a Christophany, but all that's just a fancy way of saying Jesus before Bethlehem. Before He came and was manifest in the flesh and walked like a man amongst men, before that happened, there were times in the Old Testament that He appeared and did the bidding of the Father and ministered and was a representative of God. And I believe that's what's taking place here. I believe that's the Lord Jesus. But you know what I find amazing? I've already said it. I'll say it again, though. If I had been God, I would have said, all right, Elijah, you want to pout? Just pout, big baby. Lay up under there and cry about it. That ain't going to fix it. You come tell me, Elijah, when you're done pitching your fit. Aren't you glad God didn't do that? He said, preacher, why should I keep going? It'd be so easy to give up. I'd say, number one, you ought to, you ought to keep going because of the patience of the Lord. You ought to keep going because though you may give up on Him, He ain't give up on you. You know, isn't it amazing that God, it'd be so easy, you say, it'd be so easy for me to give up on God. Imagine how easy it'd be for God to give up on you. I mean, God being as glorious and amazing and wonderful as He is, and we have nerve to say, oh, it'd be so easy to give up on Him. And I understand in our human infirmity and frailty, it is easy to say that. I understand the flesh says that. But I'm saying, think about it from God's perspective. How easy would it be for Him to say, I've tried, I've been merciful, I've been loving kindness unto them and tender unto them. And I'm just giving up. I'm done with it. I'm tired of their fits. I'm tired of their failures. I'm tired of their flaws. I've done everything. I've given them all things that pertain to life and godliness and still they want to climb up under a juniper tree and whine about it. Uh, instead, you know what God does? He keeps dealing with us. Uh, here's, how, here's how evil, here's how corrupt and, and deceptive the flesh does. When the sweet Holy Ghost of God comes and stirs and convicts your heart, He'll make it out to you like God's picking on you. When the truth is, the worst thing God could ever do in your life is leave you under your own devices. The very fact that the Spirit of God stirs your heart and deals with you is a mercy of God. He could, you say, preacher, well, what could He do? He could just leave you alone and let you go that way and live your own way. How do we see the patience of the Lord? Well, number one, I see that He stirred Him. He could have left Him alone, but He comes along and, and, and He, the Bible says He touched Him, alright? And to really understand that word, you've got to read the Hebrew and the Greek and the Swahili and the German. But let's just say this, it's not a gentle touch. It's not, it's not a, hey honey, how are you? Are you awake? It was more of like a whap! But you know, sometimes, I don't need this. Hey, honey. In fact, I found this. Most of the time, God does that to me. I just hit the spiritual snooze button. God's got to give me a swift kick sometimes. And I, it's not pleasant, but it's what I need. And I'd say this. You say, preacher, why should I not give up on him? Because he's still knocking on your heart's door. He's still dealing with you. He, he's not just abandoned you. I see that he stirred him. Verse number 6, the Bible says, He looked and behold, there was a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. Now later on in, in verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for thee. In other words, he's saying you need to eat this food because you have a journey ahead of you. That implies to me that that food was given for strength. Elijah was weary. And it is a fact that very often physical bodily weariness can be a conduit through which the devil afflicts us. 
you get tired, you get run down, you get worn down, you, you get this people deal with chronic pain and people that deal with health problems and the devil uses it to try to ride them and destroy them and discourage them. And it, it, it's possible. He'll, he'll take any, he don't fight fair. He fights dirty. He ain't going to give you any slack. He'll use anything in your life that he can. But let me tell you how good the good God of glory is. He comes along and he gives him the strength that he needs. But here's what I find interesting. It's not just physical strength. It's spiritual strength. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because he goes on to say you're going to go in the strength of this 40 days and 40 nights. And I don't know about you, but you give me a slice of bread and a cup of water, that ain't going to do me for two hours. If I eat Chinese food, I can't go in the strength of that 40 minutes. Amen? By the time I put the car in park, I'm looking at my wife and saying, you want to run back to Taco Bell? We, You know... But it goes in the strength of it. And of course, there's spiritual import to this food. There was a physical aspect, but that physical aspect was only to bolster him spiritually for a spiritual battle that lay ahead of him. But you know what I find interesting? I, I don't know. I've never talked to Elijah. I suspect one day I will. I'll probably have to stand in line for a while to do it. But maybe him, me and him can bond over beards or something. I don't know. But I would suspect that if he had had his choice in that moment, he probably would not have chosen plain bread, and plain water. Can I tell you, sometimes the strength that God gives you will not be, it won't be what you want. It'll be what you need. Sometimes it will not be what you are salivating for. It'll be what you're starving for. It won't be what you desire. It'll be what you demand in your circumstances. Oftentimes we think of the strength of God as being this sort of uh, buoyant, bolstering, invigorating strength that God gives. We think that God gives us strength so that we can leap a tall building in a single bound. But you know, Paul says it this way in the book of Colossians, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and long suffering. Can I tell you a truth that your flesh and my flesh don't want to hear? God doesn't give us strength so that we can beat them all. God gives us strength so that we can bear it all. He don't give us strength so that we can feel better. He don't give us strength for feeling. He gives us strength for faith. And often the strength He gives us will not necessarily appear strengthening in that moment. In fact, very often He'll have to weaken our natural strength to bolster our spiritual strength. That's what He did for the psalmist. The psalmist says, He weakened my strength. Why would God do that? Because as Paul uh, learned, uh, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Say, preacher, why shouldn't I just give up on God? Because He's given you the strength you need to go on. And you may not feel that strength. You may not sense that strength. But if you will in faith put one foot in front of the other and keep on going for God, you'll find that He'll give you the strength that you need. Man, I, I mean, I can just park here and I can't because I got too much. But, but man, I think about that widow woman and Elijah had just learned this two chapters earlier. That widow woman with the, with the cruise of oil and, and the barrel of meal. And, and you know, God, God says, you just keep reaching in the barrel and they'll keep being meal there. At some point, that the last handful of that woman's meal became the first handful of God's meal. At some, and she never knew when it was. She just kept reaching in and scooping out and reaching in and scooping out. And never did she look in that thing and it appear to be full, but it's just God made a limitless bottom to that barrel. And as long as she kept reaching in, God would keep reaching up and putting meal in her hand. We want God to give us all the spiritual strength so that we feel a thousand feet tall and bulletproof. But instead, he says, just keep reaching in and grabbing a handful, and I'll make sure there's a handful always there. I see that he's strengthened him, but then I see this in verse 7. He says something interesting. He says, arise and eat because the journey 
is too great for thee. He sobered him. He made Elijah realize that this was the moment in which he had to make up his mind as to whether he'd go on for God. That if he laid back down a third time, he wouldn't have the strength he would need for that journey. In other words, he told him that there were real costs to sitting under the juniper tree. I'm just going to be honest with you. A day or two under the juniper tree, and the grace of God can probably fix that. A month or two under the juniper tree, and the Word of God can probably set us straight. But if you make up your mind to pour footers and build a house under there, it does do lasting damage in your spiritual walk. You say, well, preacher, you're saying you never... Oh, no, I've spent time under More time than I should have. But I'm saying it, it affects us. If we live isolated away, I mean, I, listen, I've known people, you've known people that have let bitterness and let hurt drive them away from the fellowship of God's people and the preaching of God's Word. And they've took that juniper tree and they've used it as, as a corner post to build a house out of it. And they're still sitting in bitterness and discouragement and their life, their spiritual walk drying up on the vine. It matters. So here's what God does in His grace and mercy. He tells us that there's real costs to this. And He sobers us. He speaks straight to us. We don't always like to hear that. Here's what I think Elijah would have loved to have heard. Elijah, you got what it takes, son, within you. Just get up and go. You're all right. He would have loved to have heard your typical self-help sermon that you'd find at a number of nondescript, ambiguous, and doctrinally impaired churches all over this city. Of You've got it within you. Just tap into that inner strength, that inner power. You believe in yourself. But the problem is, we can't believe in ourselves. Because like Paul said, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So instead he comes along and he says, son, you're about to waste away. You better eat before you perish. And can I say this? It gets to a point where we better eat before we perish. I'd say he sobered him. Well, not only because of the patience of the Lord, but I'd say we need to keep going because of the presence of the Lord. Verse 11, the Lord says to him, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. In God illustrating to Elijah the reasons that he shouldn't give up, that he ought to go on, God says, Elijah, just take a look at who I am, and you'll find the strength you need to go on. It's part of the reason the first thing God will do to a person when he wants to wreck their spiritual life is get them out of church. Because if he can get them out of church then they're not being confronted with God's Word on a regular basis and they're not being preached to and exhorted. You know, I'll preach, I can do a personal Bible study. Yeah, that's true, but can I tell you this? You won't never be as hard on you as the Holy Ghost will be. I'm just being honest with you. You won't ever be as hard on yourself as the Holy Ghost is. There's a reason God's given us the house of God. And so when He isolates them away from that, then He has cut off their ability for God to challenge them concerning their spiritual condition. If a man's going to get help, He's got to see the Lord high and lifted up. What kind of presence is it? Well, I'd list a few things. Number one, I'd say this. It's a persistent presence. Why did he run off into the wilderness? Now, here's the good, wonderful, gracious providence of God. The Bible says he winds up at Mount Horeb. Now, if you study your Bibles, you'll find that Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. I don't know about you, but I tend to believe he probably wasn't walking around with a Boy Scout compass and a, and, and a, and a map, Brother Ken, looking for the Mount of God. But here's the providence of God. He goes out into the wilderness to wander. And God puts His wandering path right to the place of God's revelation of Himself. And you know what you find? He gets there and God's sitting there waiting on Him. In other words, God didn't let Him go 
God chased him down. God guided his path. And I'd say this, you know what you'll find in those moments of discouragement? If you'll open your eyes, you'll start to see God everywhere. You'll look around, you'll start to see God being gracious, uh, orchestrating things in your life. You'll start noticing people talking about the Lord. Kind of like when you buy a car. You ever notice when you buy a car, all of a sudden everybody else bought that car too? You ever notice that? Uh, you go out, you buy, you buy a, a Honda, all of a sudden everybody went and bought a Honda. You're a trendsetter. You know that? No, you know what really happened is you started to notice them because you drive them now. Listen, you, you, you start looking for the Lord, you'll start seeing Him on every hand. It's a persistent presence. Man, I'm glad He don't give up on us. Not only that, I see it's a powerful presence. Now, this is interesting. Verse 11, the Bible says, A great strong wind rent the mountains, breaking pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now, why did this take place? And why does the Bible carefully tell us on each great display of God's power that He was not in those things. Now, again, feel free to disagree with me, but I think if you compare Ezekiel chapter 1 with this experience of Elijah, I think you find out exactly what happened. In Ezekiel chapter number 1, Ezekiel sees the glorious throne of God pull up and park itself right in front of him. And he describes some things. like He describes how the angels would beat their wings and it would create a great wind. But the angels ain't God. He would talk about how when they would beat their wings, that it would create a great thunder and the earth would shake. But those angels and their wings, they're not God. And then he says that as God's throne approached closer, when he saw the throne, that it appeared as a fire enfolding in on itself. But that fire wasn't God. But at the heart of all of that sat God enthroned in his glory. Now you say, well, how come Elijah didn't see that? Because his face is wrapped in a mantle. His face is wrapped in a mantle so he doesn't see it. He's sitting inside a cave with his face and all, and he just hears these things. And if a man was, was describing hearing what Ezekiel saw, that's what he would describe. Now why then does God display it that way? Well, I'd say this, it's not only a persistent presence, but it's a powerful presence. He wanted Elijah to understand just, just how powerful and glorious God was. It's interesting that, that he, he pulls up and, and, and uh, he, he asks Elijah, he says, what doest thou here, Elijah? And Elijah goes through his whole spiel of why he's super spiritual and that's why he's discouraged. And then God rolls by in his glory. And then he says, now Elijah, why are you here? That sort of implies that if Elijah had just been willing to open his eyes and see how powerful and glorious God was, it would have solved his despair. You know why we grow discouraged? We lose sight of how powerful God is. Once you realize that God can literally, just by showing up, tear down mountains, that God, just by rolling into your neighborhood, can cause earthquakes, then you begin to say, could it be I'm going through what I'm going through, not because God's too puny to change my circumstances, but because He's providential enough to know what I need? In other words, that what I'm experiencing is not by accident or misfortune, but by the providence of God. And if it's by the providence of God, I reckon I better just trust Him with it and let Him be God and me be His servant. It was a powerful presence, but I love this. It was a personal presence. It says, after the fire, verse 12, a still, small voice. You know, here's what God did. God pulled up, and He didn't just do a flyby. He parked for a visit. Aren't you glad? Don't, God don't just do a flyby 
He don't just roll by like a parade. He pulls up, puts her in part, and says, Elijah, I'm here and we need to speak. It was a personal presence. And whenever Elijah comes out and speaks to the Lord, the Lord asks him exactly what he needed to be asked. When You've heard me say this before, but God is omniscient, right? That means He's all-knowing. There's nothing God doesn't know. You say even that? Yes, especially that. God knows about that. God knows everything. And if God knows everything, why would an all-knowing God ask a question? Now, every question, you know what a rhetorical question is, right? A rhetorical question is a question you ask not because you want an answer, but because you want the person you're asking to think about the answer, you know? Uh, like if your daddy ever said to you, what do you think, I'm stupid? He wasn't asking you to say yes. And the fact that you're sitting here today means you probably picked up on that. So you know what a rhetorical question is. Every question that God asks is rhetorical. When He says, what doest thou here, Elijah? He wasn't trying to figure it out. He wanted Elijah to think about it. What am I doing here? I mean, I was just on the mountain and saw God answer by fire. Why am I here? Well, He gives an answer. And in His answer, He's pretty informative. This is interesting. Verse 14, He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Now, is that true? Well, God is a jealous God, but He hasn't given up. Because the children of Israel have forsaken my covenant. Well, is that true? All throughout Israel's history, they forsook the covenant God made with them. But that wasn't a reason to give up. He said, they've thrown down thine altars, God. But was that really why? Because if you study the history of Israel, they had done that generations before Elijah ever showed up on the scene. And he says to him, they have slain my prophets with the sword. Was that why he quit? Well, Jesus said that all the prophets had been slain from Abel down to Zechariah. So all the way back to Abel in the garden, there had been prophets slain. So why then did he quit? I would say this, a reason that's not a reason is an excuse. And that's what he gives. He gives a bunch of excuses. He then says this, and I, even I only am left. Is that true? No, of course that's not true. He had already met with a man by the name of Obadiah that had hid a hundred servants, prophets of God in the mountains and protected them. So he knows that's not true. So why is he there? He tells us. Takes him the whole verse to get there. But he says, and they seek my life to take it away. Now the Holy Ghost has already told us this, remember? Because Jezebel says, by this time tomorrow, I'm going to make your life like one of those prophets that you've slain. And the Bible says when he saw that, he was afraid and fled for his life. You know what I found? We often want to robe our discouragement in sanctified living. He had all these super spiritual reasons why he wanted to kill himself. And you know, it's amazing to me that whenever God says, what are you doing here? His answer is, I'm just so spiritual, I'm ready to give up on you, God. I mean, isn't it? I'm so upset that we live in such a wicked world. But the truth is, the world's always been wicked. It was more wicked before he went up on that mountain than it was after he went up on that mountain. Why is he so discouraged? Here's why. He got his focus on himself. What does God do for him? He says, Elijah, quit focusing on yourself and start focusing on me. I, I would say it was a it was a personal presence. It was a perceptive presence. He knew exactly what he needed. Now, I got about 75 more of these, but you ain't got that kind of time. So let me just give you a couple. I would say this. You say, preacher, why should I go on instead of giving up? Well, I'd say because of the plan of the Lord. He says, I even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Boy, we're in a bad shape. 
Elijah is God's whole plan, and they're about to kill him. Now, you know that's not true, and so did Elijah. But isn't it funny how we seem to think that when things go sideways in our life, it must be God fell off of His throne. As though the only reason God sits upon the circle of the earth is to keep us happy. The reality is, God's doing a lot more than just keeping our appointment book filled and our bills paid. He said, don't give up, Elijah, because of the plan of the Lord. What does he say about it? Well, notice a few things here. Verse 15, the Lord said unto him, go, return thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. Once God shows him his glory, God's done having a conversation. Because if he won't accept the glory of God as a reason to go on, there's nothing else God can say to him. So he just says, all right, Elijah, dry it up and go do what I tell you. So he sends him on the way to the wilderness to Damascus. And this is what he said, When thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. In other words, he points to the robustness of his plan. Elijah says, I'm the only one left, God, and they're getting ready to kill me. Your plan has failed. And God's answer is, Elijah, that would be true if you were the only person in my plan. But I hate to disabuse you of it, Elijah, but my plan is more robust than just you. In that moment of despair, we have to believe, to, to sanctify our despair, we have to believe that God has failed. But in order to believe that God has failed, we have to believe that all that God is doing in this world is what He's doing in our life. Once we realize God's doing a lot more than just what He's doing in our life, then it gives us the nuance and perspective of understanding that though things may look real bad where we're at, where we're at is not the only place to be. God's working in other places as well. It's true that when you fall into the midst of affliction, of calamity, if all God was doing was tending you, then and this is the, this is the problem. The self-involved, self-centered, narcissistic Christianity of today goes in for this. But the reality is God's doing much more than just what He's doing in your life. I see the robustness of the plan. I see the requirement of the plan. I love this. He says this, when thou comest. Ain't God good? He could have said, Elijah, if you ever get over yourself and quit sulking, I'll use you. But that's not how God says it. He says, Elijah, when thou comest. He takes for granted, knowing as he, being God, he knows that Elijah's going to move past this. And can I say, whatever place of despair that you're in, if you make up your mind to move past it, I'm not saying you won't ever struggle, but I'm saying you don't have to stay in that. You can move past it. By the grace and help of God, you can move past it. He says, when thou comest. Well, what's he going to do? He says, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. Elisha, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. In other words, here's what he's saying. You shouldn't quit, Elijah, because I've got a plan for your life. That plan is bigger than just you but it does involve you. You know, it's true that none of us are indispensable to the work of God. I don't care who you are. I mean, if we won't serve God, God will find someone that will. But God has chosen that He might use us, and His greater desire is not to ignore and dismiss us, but rather to integrate us in the work and plan of God for our life. In other words, you say, well, preacher, if I don't go, somebody will go, yeah, but wouldn't it be better if you went? Preacher, if I don't serve, somebody will serve. Yeah, but wouldn't it be better if you serve? Wouldn't it be better? God's desire would be that all of us be in the place that God would have us to be in our lives. I see the requirement of the plan. Then I see the resilience of the plan. Say, so, preacher, what if it don't work? Here's what everyone says when they're discouraged. What if I try to go on, but I still feel this way? Well, going on is not predicated on you feeling better. It's not predicated on feeling. It's predicated on faith. So how you feel should not inform what you do. Your faith 
should inform what you do. But even, let's go ahead and say, yeah, okay, maybe you don't feel better. You say, preacher, what if I try, but it fails? Well, God's already figured that out. He says this, it shall come to pass that him that escapeth. And can I just pause and say, there'll be some that escape. If your idea is, I'm going to get up from my despair and become a superstar Christian and never make a mistake again, you might as well just go ahead and move to the next juniper tree. Because you're going to wind up there anyway. If your idea is, I'm never going to make a mistake, I'm never going to fail, I'm never going to mess up, go ahead and just stay under the juniper tree. It'll save you some time. Because you are going to want, there'll be some that escape. There'll be some things that go, don't go the way that you hope. But here's how good God is. Him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. I see the resilience of God's plan. He says, Elisha or Elijah, it ain't all rising and setting on you. I'm doing a lot of things. And guess what? You say, well, Lord, what if I try to serve you and it don't work out? God already knows. He's already accounted for that. Preacher, what if I try to serve God and I mess up? I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but God already knows that you mess up. I think sometimes we think that God thinks that we're something we're not. <laughs> he knows if our frame that we are but dust. God's not surprised. God knows what you're going to do before you know what you're going to do. In fact, I'd say this. If you think that God shouldn't have saved you because of your next mistake, imagine what God would think because He knows all your mistakes and He saved you anyway. I, I see the resilience of His plan. And then finally, and I'm done. No, you don't believe that. But that's okay. Verse 18. I told you I've got more, but I'm going to have to stop here. Verse 18. He says this, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Elijah says, I, even I only am left. And he was 7,000% wrong. Preacher, why should I go on instead of just giving up? I'd say because of the people of the Lord. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, but, you know, we, we live in a world that values and appreciates superficiality, compromise, worldliness, things like that. And if you're not careful, you'll inundate yourself so much with that that you'll think you're the only person walking around doing something for God. But can I just, and I don't know if this will encourage you or discourage you, but it's the truth. Uh, it ain't just you. It ain't just me. There's people everywhere that know God and love God. I'm not saying everyone everywhere, but I'm saying there's people everywhere. This whole notion that we're the only people that are living for God and know God. And when I say we, I mean the people within these walls right now. I'm not talking generically about Christianity. Listen, I know that, that He's the way, the truth, the life. I'm not suggesting any sort of universalism. But I'm just saying this notion that, hey, me and my little group here, we're the only ones living for God and everybody else are a bunch of wicked reprobates. The devil wants us thinking that because he wants us feeling outnumbered. And here's the truth. If it was just you and God, you'd still be a majority. But in the cold light of day, you know you'll find there's a lot more people serving God than you'd ever think. In fact, that's really what he says here. Two things. Number one, he says, Elijah, there's more of them than you think there are. You think you're the only one. Now, it's interesting. Elijah lies to himself because he knows at least there's a hundred of them in a cave somewhere being cared for by a man of God by the name of Obadiah. But he can't let himself acknowledge that. And you know what I've found? We oftentimes, in moments of despair... We, we imagine, even when we know there's people that love God and serve God, I know what it looks like. I know it looks like the world's going crazy. I know it looks like everything is wicked. I know it looks like things are... And I'm not saying there's not some truth to that. But I'm saying this. We tell ourselves, I'm the only one. 
And the reason we tell ourselves that is because it facilitates our discouragement and our despair. I'd say this, if the only one was Elijah, things probably would be in pretty foul shape. If I was the only one walking around serving God and loving God and living for God, boy, I'd put a lot on my shoulders, wouldn't it? But i got good news to report. There's more people serving God than you think they are. Not only is there more of them than you think, but number two, there's more to them than you think. Look what he says. He says, these ain't just people that know God. He says, these are people, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. <laughs> there's more people taking a stand than you think. There are. There's more people standing for right. And we live in a society right now where you are bullied into silence. But I tell you this, there's more people taking a stand than you'd believe. And you take that for whatever you think it's worth. But there's more people taking a stand for what's right, for what's true, for what's of the Lord than you'd think. So, but preacher, all, all that I see on the news. Well, yeah, you're watching the news. Uh, but, but, but preacher, all the, I look on Facebook. Yeah, you're looking on Facebook. Get out and talk to somebody. Meet somebody. Be around the people of God. Go to a revival meeting. Go to the house of God. You know what you'll find? There's more of them serving God than you think. And, you know, the, the devil tells us, he comes along and he says, ain't nothing but compromisers out there. You might as well compromise too. But he has to tell you that. Get, that's how he gets people to compromise. This is why iron sharpeneth iron. You get around the people of God, you'll find there's a lot of people still standing for the right thing, still sticking by the stuff. I'd say go on because there's people that need you to go on. I, I ain't going to preach it, but if I was going to preach it, here's what it'd sound like. The he, <laughs> I ain't going to preach it. I'll get nervous. But my, my last point was going to be because of the plow boy. There's Elijah walking behind them oxen. And he's, and he's a faithful young man. He's trying to make something of his life, but he's wasting his life because he's following oxen instead of the Almighty. It's not that there's anything shameful about how he's living, but there just ain't much to it. You know, and so here Elijah comes by and throws his mantle on him. And Elisha looks at him and he says, let me go home, kiss my father and my mother. And it was the same way as in men in Luke chapter number nine. What he was saying is, let me go home and live out the rest of my parents' life. He's caught in between two worlds. He knows God's calling him. He knows God's doing something in his life, but he has all these temporal responsibilities. And Elijah says something amazing. He says to him, uh, you know, what have I to do? Turn back now. What have I to do uh, with thee? Or what? Have I done to thee? In other words, what he's saying is, I didn't call you. God called you. He's saying, you need to make up your mind what God's doing in your heart. And you know, Elisha would go on to perform twice the miracles that Elijah did. Can I make this one point and be done? I, I, I promise. Do you know that Elijah did more by the day that he got up out from under the juniper tree and obeyed God in calling Elisha? He accomplished more on that day than he did on every other day of his life put together. On that day... He was instrumental in a young man being called into ministry that went on to do twice as much as Elijah did in the rest of his life. You know how we really make a difference for God? We just get up and go on. Preacher, I don't feel like it. Well, I'm not asking you to feel like it. Preacher, there's people who could do it better than me. I'm not asking you to do it better than them. I just think the Lord's asking us, don't give up. Keep on. I'll do it imperfectly. That's okay. God knows that. Preacher, I'll mess up. That's okay. God's already built in redundancy into His plan to make up for how you and I'll mess up. But here's the one thing God can't overcome in your life. If you refuse to get up and go on and serve the Lord. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. Hey, listen, we ought to do business with God. We ought to do business with the Lord. There's probably folks in this room that's right on the edge, man. And if you are, you're not the only one. I promise you that. You're sitting there looking at it and saying, how, how easy it'd be, just give up, quit. 
and just quit serving God. Can I tell you it's better to go on than just to give up? Preacher, I don't feel like it. I'm not asking you to. God's not either. He's just asking you to not to have a feeling, but to have faith and to go on and to serve Him. Hey, if you're right on the edge, you ought to make up your mind today that you're going to go on and you're not going to give up on God. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. I ask it in His name.